Welcome to HD Buzzcast, Huntington's Disease Research News in Plain Language, written by scientists for the global HD community. Hi everyone, this is Ed Wilde in London, with a special edition of HD Buzzcast. It's an audio version of the presentation Jeff Carroll and I gave at the 2015 Huntington's Disease Society of America annual convention in Dallas. It's about an hour long, so make yourself comfortable, as Jeff and Ed talk about the very latest in Huntington's disease research and clinical trials. Hi. Hello, everyone. How are we doing? Yay, cool. So, um, in your program, the talk is called Get on the Bus, uh, and I'm not quite sure where that came from. Because the talk that we are going to do is called Get Behind the Bus, which for reasons that will become apparent is a very important distinction. So um, please take out your programs now and change the name. No, you don't have to do that. So It um, also says that I did my postdoc with someone named Mary McDonald, and I'm not sure who she Mary is. Mary McDonald. She sounds Sorry, Marcy. Um, so for the... Uh, George, as George said, I was recently promoted, and thank you for the uh, very kind intro. Um, and also, it's awesome to be here. Hello, Texas. Um, <laughs> so with uh, being a, a slightly more senior neurologist than I was 10 years ago when I joined the HD community, now for the first time ever, I have a disclosure slide. Um, so uh, clearly I'm a big boy now. <laughs> Don't applaud that. <laughs> so here, um, everyone gets serious for a few seconds. Uh, I have provided expert consultancy advice to Isis Pharmaceuticals and Shire Pharmaceuticals. I am also running HD clinical trials on behalf of Pfizer, Teva, and Isis. All the payments for these consultancies go to my employer and are used for Huntington's disease research. I do not own a house or a car. Jeff has no uh, disclosures, but is more than happy to talk to anyone who wants to hire him as a consultant. Catch me at the break. Um, all I have is my integrity. <laughs> oh, uh, my disclosure. This is my important disclosure. Uh, this is Billy and Elijah in the tent. That they, these are my kids, my twins. Uh, they've been sleeping in that tent for two weeks. <laughs> it's fine with me, I guess. Uh, they're, uh, they're there waiting for me to come home because they're twins, and today is their uh, ninth birthday. Um, so, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm told that uh, next year, this won't happen on June 27th, which I think they'll appreciate. So anyway, after this, I have to go home because I should be, also be a dad, so I apologize for missing the gala, which I really hate to do, but uh, it's for a good cause. Uh, good job on the animation there, Dr. Weld. Keep talking. Oh yeah, sorry. I was just doing a <laughs> selfie, um, <laughs> and I'm just going to post that to my Twitter feed. With the HDSA30 Dallas hashtag, uh, that's good. on its right, way. Nice. Okay, and with that, we can begin. <laughs> so, um, we have this problem of Huntington's disease, and uh, we and all of the other scientists working in the HD community, uh, which is a community, uh, believe that it is a solvable problem. We believe that we can fix this problem and bring about a world free from Huntington's disease. Um, it's a big problem. It's like a mountain, and like this mountain, um, it's not quite clear how big the problem is. We won't necessarily know until we get there that we have reached the summit. Um, we believe that climbing the mountain is a good thing to do, and we believe that it is possible. 
Um, however, we also feel that waking up in the morning and saying, I'm going to climb that mountain without any preparation or without any idea of how to do it would be unwise and probably impossible. Instead, a journey like this needs to be broken down into steps, small manageable steps, so that you can feel it when you move a step forward. And if you step backwards, you only fall back a small way. And there are many routes to the top of this mountain. That is our philosophy. Break down a big journey into little steps. So the way that we do this most concretely, as George uh, so nicely laid out, was with uh, primarily our website, HDBuzz. Could you do me a favor and raise your hand if you know about HDBuzz? Well, awesome. George just mentioned it, so that doesn't really count. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Before today, if you knew about it. So as you all know then, that's really gratifying. It, it didn't used to be like that when we first started. Uh, the goal of HDBuzz is to take uh, the research that you need to know about, or we think you need to know about, we're just two guys, but uh, that might impact the lives of Huntington's patients. So not just clinical research news, but also basic science uh, is uh, covered in a way that's uh, totally based on whether Ed and I think it's cool or not. Uh, but the good thing is that we're just two guys with a website and the only people who, well, the most important people who support us are you guys. The HDSA and the other lay organizations support HDBuzz. So our only loyalty is to you. Uh, and hopefully that comes through. Uh, and if anyone wants to offer us more money than the HDSA has, uh, <laughs> see me at lunch. Uh, so this is what HDBuzz looks like. As you know, the stories are there. Uh, they're short stories um, uh, that we have, we have a start here thing. So for those of you who have family members that maybe uh, are new to Huntington's disease, Ed, can you highlight while we talk? Oh, cool. So we now have like sort of a start here thing. So if you've got a family member that needs some info or you've got someone who's new to the field, that's a great place to go. Uh, when you click on one of the stories, uh, you'll be able to see it. Uh, we, it, the key thing about the way that we try to write is that we always try to put things in context. So raise your hand if you've seen a press release that made you think Huntington's was cured in a mouse, inevitably, right? Uh, I love the buttons, you are not a mouse. Um, so we, we try to cut through that a little bit, and Ed and I have some experience. I've run a lot of mouse trials, and Ed's run some human ones. And we always try to put uh, these findings into context and to strip out the BS, if you'll excuse me. Uh, that always seems to accompany things when they're at the press release level. Uh, not all Huntington's families speak English, and we're aware of that, so we have uh, 13 languages now, I think, uh, where people can read HD Buzz content in their own uh, language, and that's thanks to volunteer uh, translators around the world who do that, which is great. We have Chinese, and we have no idea what it says, but for some Love reason it. it just looks really cool. <laughs> Science things written in Chinese, awesome. Uh, you guys hopefully know how to find us, hdbuzz.net. You don't really need to do that if you're uh, keeping up with the HDSA's website. They've done a great job of integrating uh, our news feed into their website, so you can get all the news there. We're on all the social media. I'd like to point out that you guys who are advocates and, and, and ha like wonder, what can I do to help? We're sort of preaching to the choir here. People who come to these meetings are advocates. They're involved. They want to be involved. Every one of you, if your family's like my family, have family members that don't want to be involved, but we need them. And one of the ways we can reach them is if you share on your social media, like stuff on Facebook, share our stories with your families, which includes maybe the family members who are teetering on the fence as to whether they're going to be involved or not. This is a great way to pull us in. So hopefully that's a, a way that you guys can involve your families. Uh, we're starting something kind of new this year. We're trying to do a podcast because we don't have enough to do. <laughs> uh, and we're going to try to get this to a mon monthly -ish. Don't say it. Don't okay, say yeah. it's going to be monthly. We're going to do it occasionally. 
whenever there's something new or pressing, or if we just feel like talking to each other on Skype, we're recording podcasts. You can use your favorite podcast software to find the HD Buzz podcast. And uh, hopefully, we'll be ramping this up this year, and there'll be some content for you to listen to while there's, you drive. There's a few online already, though. Yeah. We've done, I think, three or four, and the latest one was about clinical trials and how to get involved. I think it's two, but. Feels like four. <laughs> That's anyway, what having a conversation with you is like. <laughs> so. <clears throat> um, I know that like about half of you are here for the first time and uh, therefore half of you have heard us give a talk like this before. The first bit of our talk is usually roughly the same and we'd like to talk about the five big reasons why we feel that HD family members can have hope that we can make a difference to this disease. So for those of you who've heard it before, here's your refresher. Um, and uh, for those of you hearing it for the first time, uh, we hope you agree. So the first one is a slightly controversial statement, but I think it's okay for me to say it, and Jeff says it's okay. <laughs> Huntington's disease is the most curable, incurable brain disorder. So it is incurable, and that's a shame, and we'd like to change that. But lots of things are incurable. The common cold is incurable, but people don't phone in sick and say, I can't come in to work today, I have an incurable nose disorder. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily helpful to think of it as incurable, but why do I think it might be curable? It's down to what Marcy and Neil have talked about. It's the Huntington's disease gene. Since 1993, we've known the cause of Huntington's disease, and it's the same cause in everyone. Everyone with that gene will get the disease. Everyone who has the disease has that mutation in that one gene. And um, that gives us a huge head start when it comes to trying to find treatments for this disease because we know exactly what we have to do. We need to stop that gene from causing the problems that it causes. Alzheimer's doesn't have a gene. Hardly anyone with Alzheimer's has a known genetic cause. The same with Parkinson's, motor neuron disease. Everyone with HD has the same problem and that means that we've spent the past 22 years since the gene was discovered figuring out what the problems are that that gene causes. How does the gene cause damage? We've made mouse models, we've made cell models, and we know that those models contain the right gene. So we have this huge advantage, and that's why I think it's curable, because we have one problem, and we, you know, we just have to solve that one problem. Another reason to be hopeful, we think, is the global HD community, which we're all obviously part of here. Uh, you know, you saw Marcy's amazing, beautiful data on the genetic modifier study, and, and how many people were in that study? 4,000 and something in the end we're, were on that one plot, and getting a, a, a population that size from a disease that's frankly pretty rare uh, takes a lot of grassroots, uh, and, and organizations like the HDSA, HDO, uh, and, and as well as working closely with clinical networks, networks of physicians and people who work at clinics who know how to run trials like the Huntington Study Group, the European Huntington Disease Network. Uh, working together, these communities, it, we don't have to hope that they can. Marcy just showed us that they can work together and accomplish amazing, huge studies uh, that are almost impossibly difficult to imagine when you sit and think how rare Huntington's is. Uh, and another thing I'll say personally, uh, raise your hand if before this meeting you had heard of the CHDI Foundation. Good, this is great. Also, didn't used to be that way. The, the scale of resources that are being deployed by this organization are really remarkable. And as an HD mutation carrier, sometimes people say to me, like, how do you go to the lab every day? You know, experiments don't work and things go wrong and you get disappointed. And that's true. And I, I, I struggled with that at points in my training. Um, but my training coincided in a stupid bit of luck that I did nothing to deserve 
with CHDI's entrance into the field and watching how much resources they're putting into the field let me have the freedom to say, well, I don't have to do everything because everything that can be tried is being tried because of the resources uh, that CHDI is deploying. It's really remarkable. So the third big reason to have hope is something that we call the golden window of opportunity. Imagine the life of a, uh, someone with the HD mutation. So for a number of years, they'd be fine. And then at some point, they start to get signs of Huntington's disease. Symptom onset. From many years before that, we now know from studying animal models and from studying people that the number of completely healthy neurons or brain cells is less than 100%. So brain cells start to go wrong before symptoms begin in Huntington's disease. Later on, the main problem in HD is that too many brain cells have died and we can't yet bring back neurons that have died. But throughout the disease, we know that there are brain cells that are unhappy, they're unwell, but they're not dead. And we know that those brain cells can be saved. The mouse models tell us this. So there is decades in most cases where there are unhappy brain cells that could be saved. And the genetic test enables us to identify people who are in that situation. And right now we can use that to our advantage because we can study people. Um, we can study the brains of people who have that mutation and, to, and use that to help us understand how the disease causes problems. But later, if we can develop treatments, that even treatments that just make a small difference to the happiness of those brain cells, make them capable of surviving just a little bit longer, because we could do it for 10 or 20 or 30 years, making a tiny difference each year, we don't have to make a big difference immediately to be able to make a big difference in the long term and improve the survival of those cells and push back the date of symptom onset so that eventually, once we have enough drugs and good enough drugs, we should be able to push symptom onset to a time where people get to die of other things like old age or being run over by a bus. <laughs> so <laughs> something to look forward to. That's not what the bus in the title is about. <laughs> Although. It, you probably do want to get behind a bus if it's going to run, unless it's reversing. Okay, forget the bus. I'll come back to the bus. The point is we have this golden window of opportunity and the theoretical possibility of preventing onset. Another uh, reason that we're inspired to be hopeful uh, is, is something that patients will often say to us when we give these talks, uh, which is, you know, my loved one or myself already have symptoms. Does that mean that these treatments that you're talking about uh, won't help them? And the answer is we don't know until we run clinical trials. We don't have that answer yet. But there's good scientific reasons to believe that having symptoms doesn't mean it's too late. And there's a, a, a now quite old mouse study uh, where a healthy mouse, depicted here by, what's his name? Uh, Michael. You, Michael, the mouse? I, I believe his name is Michael. I think you're right. Uh, so you can take a healthy mouse and you can switch on a little bit of the mutant Huntington gene. As uh, we've talked about today, we can use the mutant Huntington gene to make mice have symptoms that somewhat resemble Huntington's, although that's, well, we can talk about that later. And the mice get a bit sick. They have a mutant Huntington gene in their brain, they get sick, that's what happens to people, that makes sense. But using genetic trickery, which is not really possible in people yet, uh, you could then switch off that mutated gene. So what happens to the mice when they've been made sick by a mutant Huntington gene in their brain and you artificially sort of shut it off? Well, you might predict they would just stop getting worse. But in fact, what actually happens is that they improve a bit. And this has been seen in at least two different independent experiments so far. This is mouse data. It doesn't mean anything until we see it in people. 
But it gives a really scientifically valid reason to hope that if we can design good drugs and give them to people who have symptoms, there's, there's at least good reason to be hopeful that we might be able to affect symptoms even once they're there. So uh, right now, that's great in a mouse. Uh, how many times have we cured Huntington's disease? Mice, I know it gets a bit, people get sick of hearing it. Uh, right now, up until now, we don't have drugs that could do that, but hold this thought, we'll come back to it later in the talk. And so the fifth and final big reason to have hope before we move on to specifics is my slightly uh, philosophical or perhaps soppy notion that science is cumulative. Um, this is a glacier. I, I mustn't say glacier because people will laugh at me if I do that. It's Texas, um, they'll probably kill you. So this is a glacier. <laughs> and uh, the way a glacier forms is that snow falls on top of a mountain and no single snowflake can make a big difference to a glacier. But it is the falling of those individual snowflakes that gives rise to this huge structure that can literally move mountains. And that's how science works. So right now, while I'm standing here in Texas, there are people elsewhere in the US and uh, in Europe and everywhere in the world doing HD research right now. People much cleverer than me, and there are lots of them. HD has attracted some of the world's cleverest scientists because we feel that it's a problem that we can solve. And um, today, we know more than we did yesterday. And tomorrow, we'll know a little bit more than we did today. And from time to time, a huge snowfall happens, like Marcy's uh, paper on the genetic modifiers, which is going to open up a vast avenue of, of research. So that's how science works, and it's happening right now. So we, we, we inevitably will make progress, and I think that that progress will start to be felt soon by HD patients and family members. However, this is where we are now. Uh, as much as we're hopeful, uh, we currently don't have any treatments approved that will modify the course of Huntington's disease. This is just the fact. So if we want to think about how do we solve that problem, uh, we like this quote from Einstein. If I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about solutions. It's tempting sometimes to think, I want to cure Huntington's. I want, let's go screen drugs. Let's jump into the clinic. Let's run trials. But sometimes we need to ask ourselves, maybe we'd design better drugs if we knew more about the disease process. And of course, both of those things are important. Yes, running trials now because we have people that need them now, and learning more about Huntington. But we're really entering a time now when the drugs that are going into the clinic that we're going to talk to you about uh, have been designed for Huntington's to attack specific problems that happen in Huntington's disease brains, not generally uh, protective things. These are compounds that have been tested before in Huntington's disease, in, in human Huntington's disease. Uh, the ones that work are in green. <laughs> so that's where we're at. Uh, but we're, despite this, uh, we don't think uh, this is all bad news. It means that, yes, we can recruit for trials, which was, which was not clear. It means, yes, there's clinics out there that can run these trials successfully. Uh, and we're basically proved that we're a community that's ready to go and test the next generation of drugs. So um, we've been saying this for ages. This comes from Robert Pacifici, who's the chief scientific officer of CHDI. He uh, said it in 2006 or seven, I think, in somewhere in Germany. That was the first time I heard him say it. And um, for the past 10 years, I've been saying it to my patients. My patients always say, How, when will the trials be here? And I always, I've been saying five years for, for the past 10 years. It's a bit like this scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, always five years away. <laughs> but this is where we are now. <laughs> so, uh, 
So last year, uh, I think things changed dramatically in the middle of last year. Uh, at this one HD meeting in Barcelona, um, five new clinical trials were announced of drugs essentially designed to target known problems in Huntington's disease based on those 22 years, which is the equivalent of those 55 minutes that Einstein was talking about. So now we're in a situation where we have loads of clinical trials of really promising drugs designed to treat specific known problems in Huntington's disease. So usually we talk about, in the second part of our talk, we talk about, you know, these are some things that are happening soon, or these are drugs which will be reaching clinical trials maybe in the next couple of years. We're changing that. We now are going to talk mostly about trials that are happening now that you, some people in this room, and certainly people that you know, can help us to get done. The first of these trials is a, a trial of a drug that has yet to get a nice name. But the trial itself has a nice name, which is the Amaryllis trial, which is uh, being run by Pfizer. And this is with a drug that inhibits a little enzyme called phosphodiesterase 10, uh, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, so this is, this is what this is about. Huntington's disease is about the breakdown of communication between cells in the brain, right? One neuron sends a signal to another neuron. It's how the, how the brain works. And in Huntington's, we have the outer crinkly part of the brain, the cortex, and it talks down to a deep structure in the middle of the brain that's been talked about today, which is the striatum. And that communication from a, from a cortical neuron to a striatal neuron, one, one brain cell talking to another one, happens when one releases neurotransmitters, signals. And that, commu that communication breaks down in Huntington's early and progressively. It gets worse as the disease gets bad. We can see that in mice. And this is an actual uh, microscope picture. No, this is a cartoon. <laughs> this is what this looks like, basically. This is what you need to know. A signal comes in from one neuron, it lands on another one, and inside of the second neuron, that signal is amplified. And those, those, those second messengers, we call them, these signals that are amplified within the cell, have to get cleaned out so the next message can come in. And that clearance is done by Pac-Man, PDE. <laughs> Pac-Man comes in and clears out those second signals. And for reasons that we can talk to you about for a really long time, but you probably don't care about, we think that if we block Pac-Man, Huntington's brains will get better. It looks really great in mice, and obviously we don't know how it will look in people until the trial happens, and that what, that's what the Amarillo study is all about. This, stu this study is recruiting in North America right now. It needs patients. Um, the, there's the name of the drug. If someone wants to write down PF254, you guys really got to come up with a better name, Pfizer, for, the, <laughs> for this will. drug. They will if it works. Yeah. Uh, you can read about it on an HD Buzz story. We've already written about it, so, so have a look there. Um, it's a trial designed to look at whether this drug um, improves movements and cognition, so thinking in patients, which, as we all know, is a, is a big problem. Uh, it's happening in Europe and America. It's a, it's a proper study, which means some of the people going in will receive a placebo or sort of a dummy pill, and that's the only way you, of course, know if a drug works. Uh, there's some numbers there on what happens at a site visit so people can know what, what that trial is involved in. Um, so actually one thing to add about this trial is that, and I know that lots of people, one thing that puts people off trials is the, the idea that they would spend a year or whatever of their life taking a dummy pill. And that would be a waste of a year. Oh, God, I've always wanted to be able to do that to Ed. <laughs> Hi. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> it was a lovely time. Really? Time up? <laughs> um, so the idea of taking, oh, it was a placebo microphone. I see the problem. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the idea of taking a dummy pill that doesn't contain any drugs is something that, that some people uh, understandably are not keen on. This trial is an example of a trial where essentially, uh, if all goes well, the company plans to do an open-label extension, which means that uh, essentially everyone who's been on the drug, or everyone who's been on the trial, whether they've been taking the drug or not, 
will be able to take part in an extension to the trial where everyone gets the drug. So, um, and I can't promise that that will definitely happen, but it's being planned. And many trials will adopt the same approach, and the, the, that enables the people on the trial to give, give more information about the drug, and also uh, everyone gets to take the drug at the end if it looks good. So that's something worth knowing about. So the second one, in fact, the, the, the second and third trials that we want to talk about are both being run by Teva Pharmaceuticals. You'll know the guy on the left, Michael Hayden. He was, uh, is indeed uh, one of the world's most prominent HD researchers um, based in Vancouver. Um, he uh, has been hired by Teva Pharmaceuticals in Israel to be their uh, chief scientific officer. So this extremely prominent HD researcher who cares incredibly passionately about HD has changed the direction of this big pharmaceutical company and they have a huge focus on HD, the kind of focus that no drug company's ever had before in all honesty. No company's ever run two clinical trials in HD before. So this is big and the first, uh, and these are both recruiting as I understand it, both of these trials need people to volunteer for them in America. So the first is a, a drug called Pridopidine, which you may have heard of before, or, or Huntexil. Um, and this is a drug that um, uh, has been tested uh, before in HD and there was a signal uh, from the trial in Europe and a, a smaller trial in America that this drug may help with movements, movement control in Huntington's disease. And it would be really nice to have another drug that, that is different from our existing drugs that helps with movements. Um, so um, a bigger trial was needed in order to get that drug registered and licensed by the FDA. And that's what the aim of the PRIDE HD study is. The second study is a drug called Laquinimod, the Legato HD study. And um, Laquinimod uh, is somewhat dear to my heart, or this trial is, because it actually, uh, the, the idea of treating people with this drug came from some of the research that I did when I was doing my PhD. So in, in HD, uh, in, in fact, in everyone's brain, the, 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 the cells that do the thinking are the neurons, but there are other cells. And one of the other kinds of brain cell is this the one on the left called microglia. And microglia are the brain's immune cells. They're the white blood cells of the brain and their job is to fight infections and clean, clean up damage. So when a brain cell dies, it's the microglia that come in and clean up the, the bits of dead brain cell. In HD, what we've shown and others have shown now is that the, the mutation, which is in those microglia as well as in the neurons, that mutated gene, causes the microglia to be slightly overactive and it looks like that is, is a bit like um, an overzealous cop. It's essentially, it's supposed to do a good job, but it's doing damage instead. Um, so the purpose of laquinimod, which is, uh, has actually been tested before in multiple sclerosis, which is an inflammatory brain disease, and it was shown to be effective in MS. Laquinimod is, we hope, will come into the brain of HD people and get those microglia to calm down a bit. It's not a very, it's not a, you know, terribly strong immunosuppressant, so we don't think that it will cause major problems with the, with the body's ability to fight infections, but we believe that making a small difference in the brain to the behavior of these microglia could make a difference and hopefully enable the brain cells, to, the neurons, to live a bit longer. So that's Laquinimod and that's the Legato HD study, now recruiting in the U.S. The last uh, specific trial that we want to talk about uh, it involves something called a Huntington-lowering therapy. You might have heard something called gene silencing therapy, and Neil gave a really great introduction to this today, but I, I'm gonna, we're going to be patronizing about it, not because I think you guys are dumb, because I think everyone can't hear about this enough. I think, it's, I think a lot of scientists would agree our greatest uh, hope for achieving uh, really meaningful therapy, because in Huntington's, we have this very clear enemy. 
right? As Ed said, in these other diseases, even other brain diseases, it's not always clear what's the bad guy. In Huntington's, mutant Huntington is the bad guy. The mutant gene causes Huntington's in everyone. And it ends up making this protein, the Huntington protein, don't worry, a little primer coming up in a second, and that is uh, different than the wild-type Huntington protein. And it clumps up and makes these aggregates. And we don't know if that's the problem or not. But there's a very clear change in the way that this protein acts. So this clumped-up protein, this protein that's not doing its normal job, uh, acts as a spanner in the works, a fly in the ointment. It screws up things in brain cells. But we know the actual... I need to stop you there because I have an important anecdote. <laughs> Which is that I gave this talk, a similar talk to this in Germany, and I, I showed this slide, and they all chuckled. And I said, why are you laughing at that? I said, in Germany, we do not say spanner in the works. We say a grain of sand in the machine. <laughs> because German engineering is so fine and finely tuned and precise that all it takes is one grain of sand. You cool. may continue. Cool story, bro. <laughs> Thanks for that interlude. Anytime. I don't even know what I was talking about. Mutant Huntington, bad news, right? So we have this, it's a bad problem, but it's a good problem because we know exactly what we need to do in theory uh, to fix all of the other problems that happen in Huntington's disease brain. So here's the, the primer, I promise. So in purple is a cell, all the cells of your brain, or any, anywhere in your body, really, uh, have a nucleus in blue, and that's where your DNA is kept, right? It's, where the, it's the storehouse of the cell, where you keep your really important DNA and keep it safe. And that's where the mutation is that people inherit from mom or dad when they are, uh, develop Huntington's disease. So the mutation happens in the Huntington gene, which is in the DNA. But by itself, we don't think that having a mutant gene is toxic. We don't think it's bad for cells. We think that, in fact, the gene has to uh, do what genes normally do, which is to get turned into a protein. So this is this white and uh, red and blue shape here. Complicated shape machines that do all the important stuff in the cell. An in-between step is that the cell goes into the nucleus when it needs some more of the Huntington protein, reads the, reads the DNA, the information that's stored there in that gene, and makes a copy of it. So it can save the important DNA in the nucleus and takes that copy out of the nucleus into the rest of the cell in a part we call the cytoplasm. And that message there in the purple stick, the messenger uh, that carries the genetic information from the nucleus out to the cell where the protein can be made is called the, the messenger RNA. RNA is a chemical cousin of DNA. So the idea of gene silencing is that we have this drug that can come in and block this message in various ways and stop the message that's in the genetic mutation in the gene from getting translated into the protein, which is where we think it really does its damage. So if we block this message from, uh, from uh, being made, we could stop the uh, genetic information in the gene from being made into a protein that actually causes all this damage. So in theory, uh, <clears throat> this would be uh, able to, this, would be able, this enables us to develop drugs that would enable us to switch off specific genes, like the Huntington gene, for example. So gene silencing has been tested now many times in lots of different animal models of Huntington's disease. And without editing any missteps out, I think it's fairly safe to say that pretty much every time it's been tested, it's done what it's supposed to do, and uh, it, it has shown itself to be effective. So you, you, you can take pretty much any animal model of Huntington's disease that produces that mutant protein, give it a gene silencing drug, delivered appropriately, and as Neil has mentioned, there are issues around delivery, which we'll come back to, and very often those, those animals actually get better, like when the gene was switched off with that genetic trick. But this is switching it off with a drug that could be given to humans. 
That was first achieved in 2005, and since then, huge progress has been made. So these are some scientific papers reporting on, all, on some of the important steps that are necessary to take that drug from mice into humans, uh, testing in large brain animals like monkeys, and showing that those monkeys didn't die, their brains did not explode. I have an interlude. Say again? I noticed that you uh, highlighted your own research when you were at yours, but there's a person who, a really important paper that was missing from that stack of papers. Oh, yeah, look at that. I First know. author of somebody named Carol or something? Uh, anyway, we're both biased is the point. Never heard of him. <laughs> so it takes, a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of approaches. It takes a lot of labs. As Neil said, there's all these different silencing approaches, and it takes different levels of expertise. It takes people like me who know to, how to play around with mice, people like Ed who know how to play around with patients without hurting them, uh, companies that actually know how to fund and develop drugs and get trials run. It takes a lot of effort at a lot of different levels, and all of that effort has been happening. It may not be obvious to everyone, but a lot is happening in a lot of different places around the world. And the race is on, basically, to bring these drugs into humans, which is why we want to focus briefly on uh, one trial which is going to be starting soon. Um, if you look in your programs at 4, I think 4.15 this afternoon, you'll see that, one of the, that there's a research session that Frank Bennett from Isis Pharmaceuticals is going to be talking about. If you can, I would urge you to uh, attend that session because it's, it's uh, you know, this is, Isis is very close to uh, bringing this drug to humans. I, it, I know what you're thinking, it's not a good time to be called ISIS. Okay. <laughs> Let's just say that. They're hoping to reclaim the brand <laughs> for the good guys. ISIS was a goddess, Egyptian goddess of healing. Um, and so it's a good name for a pharmaceutical company. It's not a good name for a terrorist organization. Maybe um, we should call them and they should change the changing name. their name. Yeah. I mean, I have a number of recommendations, but one of them is that they need to change the name. <laughs> So, um, founded in 1989, so ISIS have been in the business a long time. Um, since, uh, I actually, I asked Roby from CHDI uh, what year they started to collaborate with ISIS, I, I have, and then I didn't change the slide. It was actually 2006 that CHDI started their collaboration with ISIS Pharmaceuticals. Um, in 2013, drug giant Roche, one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, pledged $360 million to pharmaceuticals, Huntington's disease uh, drug development program. Um, so uh, that's a lot of money by anyone's reckoning. Um, that, that is certainly enough money if the drug works to get it licensed. Uh, in 2014, uh, UCL, my uh, employer became involved um, when uh, at the conference I mentioned in Barcelona my m mentor and friend Sarah Tabrizi um, announced that, you, that she was going to be the global chief investigator, uh, clinical investigator for the planned gene silencing trial run by ISIS Pharmaceuticals. So um, it's going to be, uh, I have some timelines for you. This is the name of the trial, 443139-CS1. Um, again, if it works, the drug will get a better name. Um, 2015 is the year, and the month that the first patient will receive a dose of this drug is July. <laughs> Which almost seems quite soon. Uh, so this is very different from five years, right? <laughs> However, a number of important caveats which I will come to. So the drug does have a nickname, HTTRX. 
It is what is known as an antisense oligonucleotide. That means a single strand of chemically altered DNA. And it does what Jeff has described. It sticks to the Huntington message and switches off the protein. When this is tested in animal models, it produces roughly a 50% reduction in the amount of the protein in the surface of the brain, the cortex. It's been tested at mu in monkeys at much higher doses than would ever be given to humans, and there, was no, there were no toxic effects to the drug, so that's good. In the monkey brain and in the brain and nervous system of large animals like pigs, the drug lasts about three to four weeks. However, interestingly, the effects of the drug outlast the presence of the drug. And this comes back to the, this golden window of opportunity and the idea that the brain cells are unhappy, but they want to recover. They're, it seems that, in the animal models at least, the brain cells do recover. They, all they need is a little bit of time without the drug, without the mutant protein on board, or with less mutant protein to deal with, and they can actually claw back some of the time that they lost when the mutant protein was wreaking its effects. And the clinical benefit may last even longer than the reduction in protein. And this gives rise to the idea of a Huntington holiday, which I think is a really lovely idea. The idea that um, you, you get this injection and it lasts several weeks, but you, you give your brain cells a Huntington holiday and they, they come back from it refreshed and invigorated. Um, I think that's a lovely thing to be hoping to give to people. So, a couple of downsides. This drug would not work as a pill. If you took it as a pill, it would be dissolved by the acid in your stomach. Even as an injection, it wouldn't get into the brain. And Neil talked about some of the problems getting drugs into the brain from an injection. So the way that we can run this trial now is to think about the spinal fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid, which is this clear fluid. It's red on the diagram, but it's clear in real life. It looks like gin. Um, so this is fluid that's produced by the brain and it surrounds the brain and spinal cord. I like how every clear fluid is gin. That's yeah, I, can't, I certainly can't think There's of another, another clear fluid, a very common fluid that looks like water. gin. Um, <laughs> so um, very routinely in neurology, we can stick needles, small, almost painless needles, into the base of the spine and um, collect this fluid. And that's known as a spinal tap. Uh, we also call it a lumbar puncture. Um, it's very commonly done. Uh, I've had two and they were fine. It, it honestly hurt less than having my uh, dental, having a dental anesthetic. Um, so it's very well tolerated. Um, this, uh, you might want to close your eyes if you're a bit squeamish though. So this is from um, the film, uh, The Theory of Everything about Stephen Hawking and Eddie Redmayne, uh, who went to Cambridge and also studied motor neuron disease at the hospital where I worked in order to prepare for the, his role in the film. Halfway through the film, he has a lumbar puncture. So this is actor Eddie Redmayne simulating a lumbar puncture. Tiny needle, gently going in, <laughs> didn't feel a thing. <laughs> and then uh, you take out the thing from the middle of the needle, and it's usually quicker than this. This guy's very slow, and the fluid drips out. So that's uh, Eddie Redmayne having a lumbar puncture, and if he can do it and I can do it, then so can you. This is me, uh, this is a very rare sight. This is a neurologist wearing scrubs. This hardly ever happens. Uh, this was me in November. I had to go to the um, teenage cancer unit at the, our sister hospital in uh, central London and um, be trained in how to inject drugs into the spinal fluid because that's how a number of cancer drugs are given. So this thumb now knows how to do that. <laughs> And uh, hopefully we'll, this thumb will be one of the thumbs giving the first I injection. I hope somebody got a picture of you standing in front of a picture of yourself on stage. <laughs> <laughs> somebody snap that, please, and post it. 
So, pause for a moment. This drug has never been given to human beings before, so it's a first in human trial. And um, this is Yuri Gagarin, uh, first man in space. And that's kind of what the people who volunteer for this trial will be. They are taking a risk, an undeniable risk, that we don't know what the effects of this drug are in the human brain. It's as safe as it can be, but we don't know it's safe. Um, and people like Yuri Gagarin took a risk for humanity on behalf of other people, and that's what this trial is about. Uh so you might say, well, that sounds pretty scary. Uh, but we have good reason to believe that ISIS knows what they're doing in this regard. Huntington's disease is not the first neurological disease they've worked on. They've had a number of successful uh, clinical trials in other neurological diseases, including in a horrible disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And the worst of the kids who have this disease uh, are, seem normal, start to meet milestones developmentally, and then start regressing. And in fact, in the worst form of the disease, die at a very young age from not being able to breathe. Uh, the problem is in the brain, and ISIS has, a, has a, a drug which is not the same as for their Huntington's drug, obviously, but chemically very similar, and it has to be delivered in the same way, because again, it has to get into the brain. And so they've delivered this to uh, kids with spinal muscular atrophy, uh, and uh, over 100 kids have been dosed with the drug, uh, this particular spinal muscular atrophy drug. It's been safe. They haven't had adverse uh, events that they would have to report if there was. And, and it, this, is a, this is a hard disease. Kids are dying. I mean, this is a terrible disease. And you almost never see improvement. And the kids that have been dosed so far, actually, there's been some really exciting signs of clinical improvement. In fact, there was a press release from ISIS uh, just very recently last month uh, saying that, in fact, they've now in increased the survival of these kids, which as far as, far as I know has never been done in SMA before. Um, so the point is, we're not SMA. It's a different drug. But ISIS has experience in very tough clinical situations with very similar drugs. And this is a really, really exciting opportunity for the community. So there are three priorities for this first gene sciencing trial. Safety, safety, and safety, predictably enough. Um, there, the, the, we will also be looking for biomarkers of whether the drug is working. So that's the, the main purpose of the trial is to see whether the drug is safe. Um, but we will also be collecting spinal fluid and measuring the amount of protein in there to see whether the drug has had the desired effect. And a number of safety markers will be tested as well. 36 to 48 people will be involved in this trial. So this is a very small trial. The patients will have early symptoms of Huntington's disease so that we'll be able to tell whether they're getting worse if the drug is making them worse or whether they're getting better. Although getting better is not the purpose of the trial. It's being run, uh, the, um, the lead clinical site is UCL in London. Um, the other sites, of which there will be five, will be in Canada and Europe. And don't be sad about that, because um, there will be other trials hot on the heels of this one. So if, and, and you know, uh, I'd be happy either way, to be honest. Uh, we all thought the trial was going to start in America a couple of years ago, and I was happy with that. I was happy for you guys to test it on our behalf, <laughs> make sure it's safe for Europeans to take. <laughs> Turns out it's going to be the other way around, and I'm very happy about that as well. We are happy to test the drug for you guys. Uh, and then the bigger trial is, you know, it may well involve sites in the USA. Um, the approvals are all going through. Uh, many of them are in place, and so the trial is ready to begin. So from the point of view of the people taking part, each person will be involved in that trial for seven to eight months. They will have four injections of the drug. Intrathecal means into the spinal fluid at the base of the spine. Injections every four weeks. 
and several different doses will be tested. So we'll start at the lowest dose and gradually work up to higher doses. Lots of assessments. So these people are going to be busy. They spend multiple nights in hospital being observed. They'll have MRI scans, EEGs, blood tests, and so on. From start to finish, the trial is expected to last roughly two years. So starting next month, and it will probably run to the, la the latter half of 2017. It may stop early if there's a sign that the drug is dangerous. Broadly speaking, with these trials, no news is good news. And as I say, there will be a number of interim analyses planned to, to see whether there is a safety concern or indeed whether the drug is doing unexpectedly well. Um, so, so one thing people often ask us is, 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 is this the trial that's going to get this drug approved? And remember, small steps. I think the answer is no. No matter what happens, even if the drug is safe, that we have to test in a bigger uh, cohort of people, a bigger group of people to figure out if it's effective. As Ed said, the priorities and the, the goals of a so-called phase one study, this kind of study, is just to see if the drug is safe. And of course, we're also going to look and see if it helps symptoms, and maybe it will, but it's not properly powered for that. So even in the best case scenario, this is not the last trial. So people need to set themselves up for realizing that this is the first step uh, on, a, on a path, but it's a step that's being aggressively pursued by everybody involved. So we have to run bigger trials to get the drug licensed. Initially, this, the, the, uh, as Ed said, the, the trial's being done in people with early Huntington's for good reason, but uh, people with later stage uh, deserve help too, as we all, I think, believe. And so you'd ultimately like to test this in people with more advanced disease. That's an interesting graphic. Yeah, the graphic's looking nice. weird. Very I'm informative. just gonna get rid of that. Um, <laughs> So we want to test it, yes, in people who have later disease, and ultimately, all of us, me included, the mutation carriers would like to have drugs that would not just cure Huntington's disease, but stop us from getting it. And so you could imagine trials in future, if this works in early HD and it works in later HD, with doing this in pre-symptomatic people, which uh, I would sign up for personally. As technology improves, hopefully as this goes on, maybe, maybe delivery will get better. Some of the things Neil talked about might come to the clinic. Uh, and in fact, as Neil said, there's different methods for doing this gene silencing. And maybe along the way, we'll learn that one of them works better. And, and that would be great, because it will mean it works better. Oh, we have to have the bad graphic again. Yeah, OK. Fine. So one thing that um, to think about, which is also um, moving towards clinical trials, as in the company behind it, Shire and Sangamo, and Neil mentioned this as well, are thinking about how to take, that, take their drug to a trial, is this idea of zinc finger gene silencing. So zinc fingers are these uh, proteins that contain zinc, which can stick to your DNA. So remember the ASO drug that's in the first trial is going to stick to the RNA. Zinc fingers stick to the DNA. <laughs> they don't look like a robot finger. This is purely for illustrative purposes. Um, so they stick to the DNA, and then they reach back and switch it off, switch off the Huntington gene. Um, and so they stop the first step in the process rather than the second step. Uh, so the mRNA, the message molecule, is not produced as much, and the protein is not produced as much. And one of the cool things about this zinc finger approach is that it can uh, be used to selectively reduce the levels of the mutant protein while leaving the normal or healthy protein relatively untouched. The human trial that we are starting next month actually um, lowers both proteins by about 50%. And we think that's safe. We are about to find out. Um, the zinc finger only switches off the mutant protein. And on the face of it, it's a more difficult thing to do, but on the face of it, it's a, a, a cleaner approach to the problem. So that zinc finger drug may be in trials in the next few years, and they're certainly thinking hard about how to run those trials. So what has this got to do with a bus? <laughs> 
Jeffrey. We promised some discussion of bus, which I know you're all really excited about. So, you know, we get a lot of feedback at HD Buzz, and Ed and I got a comment once that struck us, and we had written about some basic science advance in worms or flies or whatever, and we love that stuff, because that's the next generation of therapeutic trials, right? It's, I mean, yes, we want trials now, but we also have to refill that pipeline with new discoveries, uh, like the type uh, Marcy talked about. This, this person was disappointed that we had covered such basic science and said, let me know when they find a cure. As in, call me when you have a cure, don't bother me until then. I don't know why they were on our website then, frankly, but anyway, they were unhappy with, I think, the pace of research. And I, I think this, this person is sort of like this girl here sitting and waiting for the bus. And it's always they, you know, let me know when they find the cure. I don't know who they is. They is us. You guys. Right? It's scientists working together with clinicians, working together, most importantly, with community members. And if all of those things don't work together, clinical trials don't happen and we don't, we don't develop therapies for Huntington's disease. So we can't sit and passively wait. In fact, this is what our title was supposed to be. Get behind the bus. <laughs> On the bus is the wrong place to be. Get behind the bus and push because all of us need to be involved. And I know it can feel sometimes like whatever your personal ability is is small. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you again a personal story. I was really sure when I first started working at Huntington's that I was going to go into a lab and show everybody and my personal connection would motivate everyone. And in fact, I got there and I got motivated by people. Scientists are working really hard and every one of them, no matter how big they are, can only do a tiny piece of the puzzle. So in my own lab, I've picked a strange little piece of the puzzle to work on. You know, I'm only putting one hand on the back of the bus with everybody else and I'm okay with that because I realize that that's what everyone's doing. And it involves all of you. Everyone in this room can do some part of the pushing of this bus. I would now like to embark on an ill-advised sports metaphor. <laughs> You're very sporty. <laughs> Look at me. Um, so to me, this is an American football team, but I think you guys would probably call it a football team. I believe it is the Dallas Cowboys. Um, this team is huge. There's like 100 players on this team. And from that 100, as I understand it, <laughs> At any one time during an American football match, only 11 players can be on the pitch, right? But I think that's correct. So um, when, when one of those 11 players from this huge squad scores a goal, everybody celebrates. The goal belongs to everyone. It's called a goal, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, touchdown. Fine. It's a touchdown. <laughs> it's not on. a goal. Just keep going. <laughs> Touchdown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't do sports this metaphors is not an anymore. Act. This, is, this is genuinely my level of understanding. <laughs> I know science more than I know sports. Thank God. I don't even call it sports. It's just sport to me. <laughs> so this is how Huntington's disease research needs to be. I'll tell you a real life story. In our clinic in London, we have a research database of patients who want to take part in trials. And there are about 750 patients on that database, and it's the, one of the largest in Europe. And uh, we're running this Legato study, the Teva trial. And a couple of days ago, I got an email from the study team saying, uh, Tuesday's screening assessment um, has been canceled because we haven't been able to find anyone to fill that slot. From 750 people, we couldn't find one person who was Avail suitable for the trial and available on the day when we had that planned. Now it's fine because we will move the slots, we'll find someone, we will get the trial recruited. We are, for any Teva people in the audience, one of the fastest recruiting sites in the world. Uh, so we're really good at this stuff, but it's the kind of problem that happens. It, the bigger the squad is, the greater the chance that every slot will be filled. 
first time around, and the trial will be run as efficiently and as quickly as it can be. So that n not being able to fill that one slot delays the London site from finishing the trial by about a week. Not so big in the, in the run of things, but s s clinical sites with a much smaller squad of players to choose from, you know, that could easily delay the trial. The trial may take longer than it needs to. Finding a treatment for HD may take longer than it needs to if we don't have enough players in the squad. And here's how you join the squad. Take part in the Enroll HD study. If you are in this room, you are eligible to participate in Enroll HD. It's the world's first ever global roster of Huntington's disease patients and family members and people who are not from an HD family. And as, been, as has been said already, you don't have to have a genetic test to take part in Enroll HD. A test is performed as part of your participation, but the result is kept in a secret database and is not revealed to you or to anyone at your clinical site. So no one will be able to tell you the result, even accidentally. Um, if you tested, that's also fine, you can take part. If you have symptoms, you can take part. If you're not at risk, if you're a, a, a partner or a spouse or friend of an HD family member, you can take part in Enroll HD as a healthy control. So everyone can do it. If you don't want to do it or you can't, tell someone else about it. The, another thing that's really exciting for people wanting to get behind the bus and push is this new effort uh, from the HDSA called HD Trial Finder. Uh, Ed and I have talked for years about what a great thing this would be if someone would build this thing, and, and, and HDSA, to its credit, has done that. So on the HDSA's website, you can find HD Trial Finder and plug in where you are, and it will tell you about trials that are happening close to you. And remember, even if you can't participate, it's a good place for you to find out for your nervous relatives, maybe push them a little bit. Uh, and that's how we're going to get these trials recruited. So this HD Trial Finder on the HDSA's website is a great way for you to find out what trials are happening near you or near your family who might be willing to participate. A final bit of advice, because we meet a lot of people who uh, may go on the website and find out about a trial and phone the clinic, and then it turns out that they're not able to participate in that particular trial. Maybe they're too old or too young, or they don't have you know, advanced enough disease, or they're on a, a medication regime that prevents them taking part in the trial, or they're just not available on the days when the trial could accommodate them. It's easy in that situation to become disheartened and to say, well, you know, I tried, I did my bit, I wasn't able to do the trial, I'll just go back to my everyday life. There are no trials suitable for me at the moment, what the hell. Uh, my advice in that situation, apart from joining Enroll, is be a wingman. Be a wingman to someone, and it should really be wing person, but the <laughs> language is sexist, um, to someone who could participate in the trial. A, a relative, a friend, tell someone about it, help that, you know, put that person's details into Trial Finder and see if they might be suitable for the, for the trial. Drive them to their research visits, help them to complete their dosing diaries, um, help them to take part in their enroll visits. Be a wingman. Let's just, we can just watch this for a few cycles <laughs> until we're all feeling completely motivated. Okay, so I think we are nearly at the end of our talk. Oh goodness, I don't know how that got there. <laughs> so uh, we are done. We would just like to finish with two quotations. The first is from Margaret Mead, uh, and this describes how you guys can change the world. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has, and that's us. Yay, Margaret.
And finally, some of you may have seen this before. I know some of you will be seeing it for the first time. An HD patient called Rebecca Potter wrote a newspaper article for the Guardian newspaper in the UK a few years ago. She, round of applause for the Guardian there. <laughs> she, um, she concluded in the following way, and every time I give a talk like this, I agree with it even more than I did the previous time. There's never a good time to have HD, but this is the best time so far in history. Thank you. Thank you.